You may have noticed uh, Job's reference to those who move landmarks in verse 2. He includes it, this moving of landmarks, in the list of crimes that continually are being carried out by the wicked. And he refers to moving the boundaries or the monuments uh, that were set up around the landscape. And while it might seem like an incidental crime in some regards, uh, compared to murder and adultery and thievery, um, it is not an incidental crime in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord takes this sin quite seriously. And that's reflected in the law of Moses and also in the book of Proverbs. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 14 There's a command from the Lord, uh, from the law of Moses. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Come down to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 17, when all the people are having an opportunity to recite what the law of the Lord is, And then that's being read to them. And then the congregation is supposed to respond to that law with amen. And so we read, Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Right. And that was uh, done as those things were read. In Proverbs 22, 28, it's mentioned again, Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. And then again in chapter 23 in verse 10, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. I think you can see when you see this law set out this way, what we were reading there from Job, they were in constant violation of this. And it's certainly worthy of notice that there has been an element of our society which is proving to be dedicated to committing this sin both in our physical world and in our culture. They see nothing worth preserving, and they resent the ideas of private ownership. And it's an element in our society that wants all landmarks removed, wants all history erased. Mother's Day is sort of a landmark. It was established by Christians to create a reminder in our culture, to remember God's grace to mankind through the blessing of motherhood, and to grant an opportunity for children to be reminded of their duty before God to honor their mothers. In the present cultural upheaval, there have been some rumblings against the observance of Mother's Day, Um, primarily because it is judged to be irrelevant, outdated, unhelpful, and exclusionary. Other than that, it's okay. But uh, it has all those problems. And I'm not sure, to tell you the truth, that there's a holiday that would not fit that description. They're all like that. That's the nature of a holiday. Even the upcoming Pride Month. Uh, fits all of that description. Relevancy is, of course, a personal thing. And that's just the point. If any holiday is irrelevant to anyone, 
All you have to do is not celebrate it. That's all you have to do. That's, that's all it's required. Its relevance to me is not relevant to anyone else. It's, it's just relevant to me. And in the context of Mother's Day, I have a mother I want to remember and honor, so I'm free to do it if I want to. And I don't have to if I don't want to either. This date, Mother's Day, is not exactly an ancient landmark, but it's been an important part of our cultural landscape for over 100 years. And over 40 other countries celebrate Mother's Day either at this time or some other time during the year. Now, as I mentioned, Job speaks of removing landmarks here in chapter 24. He speaks of it as an example of the incessant crimes committed by sinful men and women. The Romans referred to such people as public pests. People who wanted to remove landmarks were public pests because they were disturbing the public all the time by what they were doing. And Job is making this point with an eye towards the criticism that's been leveled against him by his counselors in the midst of his suffering. And we looked at this last week, and without going out uh, over everything we covered then, I'm just going to try to give you a quick review. In, In Job 23, the chapter before, the suffering servant of the Lord Job is responding to the analysis of his complaints by his friends. And you may recall we said then that they charged him with complaining improperly against God. And Job replied, and he said, I'm not complaining against God. I'm complaining against these things, these things that are in my life, the losses that I have and the suffering I'm going through. And he says, to tell you the truth, my suffering is great, much greater than my complaining. But um, I'm complaining, yes, but it's not against God. It's against what I'm having to endure. And it's greater, the, what I'm having to endure is greater than what I am complaining about. Um, his friends said that he ought to seek God and not complain. And Job replies that he had done that, just that. But still, he couldn't see what God was doing or, or why he was doing it in his life. He was allowing these things to plague him, but he couldn't tell why or how. And John Trapp paraphrases Job as saying, in effect, I desired to find him, but he's not visible to me. He's too subtle for sinew or sight to seize upon. His his judgments also are unsearchable, and his paths past finding out. If you go to that 23rd chapter, you see where he says that. I I looked to see if God was in front of me, and I couldn't see him there. Looked for him working on the right side and the left side. I couldn't see him working there. I don't know what he's doing or why he's doing it. So it's not that I haven't sought him. I've sought him. I just haven't been able to find him in that way. <clears throat> there was, however, one thing that John did, or excuse me, that Job did know, and we mentioned that last time too, and that is that God knows the way that I take, he says in chapter 23, verse 10. He knows the way that I take, right or wrong, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. He says, what he's doing and why he's doing it, I don't understand, but this I do know, that he knows what I'm doing, how I'm responding, and after he's finished trying me, I will come out as gold. Trap again says, gold which is purged in the fire shines in the water, as on the other side, clay is scorched in the fire 
and dissolved in the water. So that's sort of the gist of chapter 23 and what he's saying there. In chapter 24, he begins with addressing the warning that they've been giving him. He deals with the opinion of his friends that the day of judgment and the fall of the wicked is imminent, and that Job, as a wicked sinner, had better repent before it all falls on his head. And you can see where they said that of him if you go back to chapter 22. If you go back to chapter 22, verse 5, he says, Is not your evil abundant? That's what they said of Job. Isn't your evil abundant? There's no end, Job, to your iniquities. And that's why you're suffering all these things. In uh, chapter 10, or rather chapter 22, verse 10, they say, Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of waters covers you. Job, you're about to be drowned because of your iniquity and your sins. And then in verses 15 and 16, They say, will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. What they were saying there is, Job, just like those people in the flood, you're about to be taken down if you don't repent now and turn from your sin. So that was the message that they were giving to Job. And they had warned him that the wicked were prospering in the days before the flood but they were quickly and violently snatched away and they suggested that Job should repent quickly lest he be caught in his sin and brought down with all such men and women in their approaching ruin. So in the 24th chapter Job under the direction of God the Holy Spirit challenges their impressions. Their impressions about how quickly the wicked fall And how much jeopardy they're really in from day to day. And uh, under the direction of God the Holy Spirit, Job says here, you can acquire a better understanding of the wicked if you just look around you and consider what they're doing and how they do it. And we, by looking at this, can get a better understanding of how the wicked operate in our day. The first thing he says is that God knows the wicked and their ways. Job begins with these words in chapter 24, verse 1. Why, seeing times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they not know uh, do they that excuse me, do they that know him not see his days? So he knows their times aren't hidden from him. Their activities aren't hidden from him. And I've read that from the King James translation uh, because There's been some tinkering with the translation here, but that rendering seems to me the clearest and the most logical in the context. And as we pointed out last week, God is omniscient, or he knows all things at once. That is, God knows all things regarding what what has transpired in the past, what is transpiring in the present, and what will yet transpire in the future. He knows it all at once. It's all before him right now. He's not learning. He's not experiencing. He's not growing in his understanding. He's not looking at the wicked and being in any way surprised or caught off guard or seeing them do something unexpected. In Jeremiah 23, 24, uh, the Lord says, Can a man hide himself in a secret place so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. 
Now, this is a truth about God that, as we said last week, we need to keep in mind when we're considering particular events, especially as we are witnesses to those events in our own time, in our own culture even. Nothing that they perpetrate takes him by surprise. His judgments against their sin are already underway against their sins. And the case against them has already begun. His providence is already countering their policies. It's not like they suddenly come up with a policy that seems ruinous and immoral and the Lord is having to respond to that and figure out, what am I going to do now to counter that? It's already before they even take those steps. The Lord already has his providential purposes in mind. And he's already prepared for the care and blessing of his people in whatever trials we might have to face. Now Job says many other things, and uh, he describes to you, as you heard in the scripture, uh, the activities and, and the machinations uh, or the intricate plots of the wicked and how they carry them out and the abuse that they carry out against the fatherless and against the widow and against the poor. All of that's there. But I want you to consider with me, just as we spend the next few minutes together, what he says in verse 17. In Job 24, 17, he says, For deep darkness is mourning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. Job describes the antics of these sinners for us throughout this chapter. But it's here in verse 13 uh, that he gives a specific instruction. So look back there, or rather a specific description. Job 24, 13, he tells us, There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its paths. They are in the darkness. In ancient times, we have record of a people who lived in what is now Ethiopia. And these people were very strange. Some think that they were the uh, original people from Atlantis. And one of the things that was different about these people, they had two things that made them odd. One was when the sun came up, they cursed because they hated the sun. And they cursed it all day long till it went down. And then when it went down, they finally had peace. And they didn't dream. Why they didn't dream, I don't know. But they were not dreamers. They didn't dream at night. But they cursed all day because the sun was up. Uh, they kind of serve as a picture of these who are referred to here by Job. They hate the light. They love darkness. They love the deep darkness. The prevalence of those who rebel against the light is testified to by the fact that Jesus refers to them. He says in John 3, uh, verse 19, and this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
Now, Job sets the works of these people who are rebels against the light in three categories. We mentioned them last week. He speaks of murderers, adulterers, and thieves. And under those three general terms fall practically all the immoral activities of sinful men. Under the first falls all life-threatening molestation. Under the second, all sexual perversion. And under the last, all fraud and deception appears under thievery. So he's representing them by those three things. Then we have his statement here that they love the deep darkness and are acquainted with the deep darkness. The wicked are those um, who are familiar with the deep darkness. That's what he says. And again, it's a term that's used elsewhere in Scripture in reference to the wicked. In Proverbs 4, 19, we read, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. What little light they have, they shut up in the prison of darkness, says John Trapp. So every age of human society has been plagued by these rebels from the light who walk in darkness and love darkness because their deeds are evil. They're the men-stealers that we referred to earlier this morning. Now, deep darkness is mourning to all of them, Job says. Or, it could be translated, for the mourning is to them even as the shadow of death. Now, just to clarify, the shadow of death and deep darkness are equivalent terms. So when you hear deep darkness, you hear the shadow of death. As far as the Hebrew is concerned, it's the same word. So you're talking about deep darkness or the shadow of death. And either way you read or translate this verse, the truth is that those who rebel against the light are lovers of darkness and haters of light. And to understand the significance of this truth, you have to acknowledge first that there is a kingdom of spiritual darkness. And we mentioned that last week. People are loath to admit that. But there is a kingdom of spiritual darkness, and that kingdom is powerful, and it's ruthless. And it includes Satan and his fallen angels, includes fallen men and women to one degree of evil or wickedness or another. And it's served by millions who are either dedicated to it in some way or are deceived into serving it. Um, Brandon brought up last uh, Sunday after the service that there is now a group of people called nuns, and, or nuns, and when they're asked for their uh, spiritual or religious position, they put none. Not nuns like in the Roman Catholic Church, but N-O-N-E. And they identify themselves as that. They're nuns. And there's a whole group of people out there who think they're nuns, but they're actually servants of this kingdom of darkness. They're people who at their hearts rebel against the light. And this reality can't be safely ignored. We just can't ignore it. Um, those who choose to pretend that it's not the case are naive and they're vulnerable, uh, both in a personal and a public way. Now, I mentioned last week that I think that it may be safe to say that many Western Christians have felt isolated and even sheltered from the malice of Satan and the powers of darkness both in the spiritual sense and in the cultural way, but those days are over. Um, we're no longer seeing that. We're beginning to see the rising of this darkness. 
And when the light dims, the dark, the friends of darkness, those who hate the light, they rise to the top, of course. Um, uh, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, described that this was more than a delivery from uh, the shadows and the types, as Hebrews explains, this deliverance from darkness that we have through the gospel, but it was a deliverance from an occult world as well. And Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And once uh, we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The gospel delivered Western culture from its bondage to those things. And to imagine it's a casual or insignificant thing to be turned away from the darkness and the power of Satan, that betrays a shallow concept of the real world in which we live and the nature of its fallen state. Now, if anyone's under the illusion that we've been uh, not at the mercy of the powers of darkness as a nation or as a culture because we're too good or too wise or too powerful, that's slowly coming apart, I think. Um, the Christian is secure, having been delivered from the domain of darkness, uh, translated or transferred out of the kingdom of Satan and into that of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this world, you who are his, you live as strangers and pilgrims. Now, we talked, too, about the nature of this kingdom, and I don't want to spend too much time reviewing that. I just want to get to the concluding point. But there is this whole culture of death that haunts our society. That whole culture of death comes from this kingdom of darkness. It rises out of that kingdom. It seizes up from it. Whether we're talking about wars or murders on our streets or on the avenues of the world, um, the efforts to normalize things like suicide or, or euthanasia or abortion, um, even drug abuse, which doesn't take into account the fact that it is literally killing our children on the streets and all sorts of other things. We go on and on. It all stems from the darkness where the one who was a murderer from the beginning rules and reigns. Now, adultery is the same thing. Under adultery comes all sexual perversion, which also finds its inspiration in the world darkness. The powers of darkness mock with derision um, the women and the men who take what is natural and pervert it into something that's unnatural. Um, Romans chapter 1 makes that very clear. Um, and this is only one aspect of the influence of the darkness in that area. There's the whole area of pornography. The, the efforts in our day to make pedophilia no longer a crime or even something that is negative, but to drag it out and to make it something that should be supported and, and, and should be encouraged. That very idea, it comes out of this darkness. 
uh, all sorts of sexual mutilation and fornication and adultery. They all have their roots in this darkness. And then you have thievery, where all defrauding and stealing and theft comes from. Now, as I said a moment ago, in the context of Job's words, you're hearing two things that explain so much of what is transpiring in our culture today. Darkness is like the morning to the powers of darkness. Wherever light begins to fail, they rush in, like the worker ready to rise in the morning and get to work. And we're stunned sometimes by how quickly there is this response to darkness and how every day there seems to be something new. And we're wondering, why is this happening? What in the world's going on? Well, there is the diminishing of the light and the darkness is rising. And they're like those who are just waiting, like you are, to, for the morning to dawn to get up and get to work. And for them, it's the opposite. The darkness is descending. That's the time for us to get up and get to work and to do as much as we possibly can to bring death and corruption and perversion out and make it public and make it a part of the culture. This is their time as they see it. And so they're taking every opportunity to do it. The more truth and justice grow dim, the more active the powers of the darkness will become. But the forces of darkness also have to oppose true light as well. The dawning of the truth, they have to oppose that with all that's at their disposal because they know that when the light of truth falls on their wicked designs, that's going to be their ruin. And it's like the shadow of death to them. They don't want the light to shine because they know that it will be their death. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, John 3.20 says. That's what Jesus says. They do not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. And that's why the champions of these causes are saying things like, we need to have a ministry of truth. We need to have that, because we have to have the authority to silence disinformation. And the disinformation is the light. And we don't want that light shining. It's not to make the world safe for democracy. It's not, its purpose is not to ensure liberty. It's to make the world safe for the spread of darkness by extinguishing the light and to ensure enslavement among those who are lost in darkness. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not everybody who's in support of this understands that. Most of them don't know that behind them is a spirit of dark, deep, uh, dark, deep darkness. Excuse me. Behind them is a spirit of deep darkness that does not want light exposing what is sin. And so, it's using whatever means possible. So, if there's someone who says, "I think that this is just politically harmful to us to to have disinformation." The enemy saying, yes, yes, we, don't, we, we need to control speech. Not because he cares at all about the political side of things, but because he's wanting to suppress truth so that error can become the truth. There are poor souls who have no idea what they're giving themselves over to, and they have no idea of the real nature of the tyranny of darkness. 
And these are those who, by and because of their unrighteousness, attempt to deliberately suppress the truth. They are the friends of terror. And Job speaks of them in those terms. So, with that said, what is uh, this like for those who are involved in it? The other day I had the opportunity to to hold a jar of mercury, just about this big, but it was heavy. Mercury's a very heavy liquid metal, if you've never picked it up. Today, the idea of getting near mercury is, you know, something that nobody would ever want you to do. When I was a kid, we used to break open thermometers and pour the mercury out in our hands and push it around to watch it slosh around in our hands. It was just a common thing for us to do. We didn't know that by doing that, we were putting ourselves in any kind of jeopardy. We didn't have any education or understanding about it. In a similar way, those who employ the terrifying powers of darkness have very little idea of how lethal those powers really are and the danger that it places them in. They think that they can handle and manipulate them to the harm of others but still remain secure themselves. But the powers of darkness know full well that they will bring down upon their own heads the terrors they have perpetrated on others. So how do we respond to this? First of all, it leaves us informed. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. We have knowledge and understanding. As we see this, it guides and direct us, directs us. We're not going to allow ourselves or should not allow ourselves to be manipulated into these ways of darkness. We should better understand them so that we know how to respond to them. Secondly, we are to be armed. Paul was not kidding in Ephesians when he said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because if you don't put on the whole armor of God, you will not be able to stand. He's not kidding. He's he's deadly serious about this reality. And then lastly, we are commissioned. In Matthew 5, Jesus says there so famously, we all know these words. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's our commission, to be light in this dark world. So we see the darkness rising, and we see the powers of darkness rising around us. What is our reaction to run away, to hide, to uh, be quiet and just wait and see what happens? No. It's to bring the light constantly to bear. Bring the light constantly to the truth. Exposing. Where is this coming from? It's coming from the pit of hell. Not to cover that up. Not to hide it. People don't want us to talk like that. They say, "Oh, oh, don't talk like that. That will alienate people. No, murder and death comes from hell. Adultery and sexual perversion comes from hell. Thievery and stealing and defrauding people comes from hell. 
And it needs to be identified for what it is. And there's nobody else out there to do it but those who walk in the light. And we're to let our light shine before men. Not viciously, not unkindly, not mercilessly, but in love, as we said this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to be that light which you have made us through the Lord Jesus Christ. May the light of your truth and your grace shine through us. Lord, may we have the grace to be able to point individuals, friends, acquaintances, family members that we know who are walking in darkness and who are, though they don't know it, the friends of deep darkness. Lord, may we be able to point them to the light and show them that these things arise from the chief man, the chief life stealer, the one who seeks death, the one who was a murderer from the beginning. And may we bring before their eyes the son of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the light of the world. May we live it, may we speak it, may we think it, may we act it out for your kingdom's sake, for your glory's sake, for the sake of those around us who are sick and dying. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. I think many Washingtonians